Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Connor, and I'm your host for this series of interviews produced by Q Squared Solutions. I'm having conversations with experts sharing their thoughts on laboratory considerations for immuno-oncology and companion diagnostics development. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Patrice Hugo, Chief Scientific Officer at Q Squared Solutions. He's here to kick off this podcast series with an overview of the topic. Dr. Hugo, welcome. Thank you so much, Chris. So first, let's give our listeners some context. Tell me about your background and your role at Q Squared Solutions. So after finishing a PhD in experimental medicine and doing five years of postdoc training in immunology, I started my professional career really as a principal investigator in academia. At the time, I was working on lymphocyte differentiation, cancer, and immune regulation, and really got hooked on that topic. It was very exciting. Then about 20 years ago, I moved to the private sector and spent over about 10 years as chief clinical trial scientist or chief scientific officer in various clinical central lab organizations. I recently joined Q Squared Solution in July 2015 when the company was created as a joint venture between Quest and Quintiles, now called IQVM. At Q-Squared Solution, my role is really to oversee the scientific activities across all the central lab, the bioanalytical divisions, the vaccine franchise, and also our genomic centers of excellence. And I lead the global scientific strategy and medical affairs at Q-Squared Solution. So let's dive into the, the meat of this. Clinical laboratory testing for immuno-oncology comprises several areas of investigation. Give us a brief overview of what those elements are. Yeah, I'll try to be brief because really this is a key element of what we're doing at Q-squared solution. Well, immuno-oncology is not very different from any other therapeutic experimental interventions. Uh, really, the foundation for clinical pharmacodynamic biomarkers, which means try to evaluate how the drug influences the body. Uh, the strategy lies on the mechanism of action and also the potential off-target effects, such as cytokine release syndrome, or any drug that are being developed. So really everything depends on the biology. I would say that over the last three decades, uh, very different immuno-oncology therapeutic modalities were developed to always boost the immune system to recognize and hopefully kill tumor cells. If we want to simplify this, we can regroup these modalities into really three categories. The first one, cancer vaccines, where you try to elicit and boost an immune response to cancer cells. The second one is immunomodulators, such as cytokines, antibodies, inhibitors of suppressor metabolites, any modalities that is there to act as a dimmer, if you want, uh, to increase your immune system to react to cancer cells. And the last one is really to focus on immunoeffectors. This is to trigger the death of tumor cells like tumor-targeting antibodies, oncolytic viruses, bioengineered T-cells, better known as CAR-T, or NK cells that are all armed to attack tumor cells. Evidently, the greatest clinical success so far has been observed with immune checkpoint inhibitors, such as the antibodies against CTLA-4, PD-1, PDL one in metastatic melanoma, non-small cell carcinoma, and also with CAR T cells and lymphomas. But now those modalities are also being used in multiple indications in clinical trials, and some have been proved already in other indications. 
coming back to your question, I have to say we need to look at the biomarker assays for clinical trial testing. These assays have been developed to monitor the status of the immune system and to better predict how the immune system can kill the cancer cells in response to immuno-oncology drugs. So really, the laboratory biomarker assays are aiming at analyzing genes, cells, and also soluble factors in the body to predict the response to drug. This is done by either detection of gene variants, mutations, gene expression, epigenetic modifications of your genome, genomic prediction also of neoantigens expression on tumor cells. These are new antigens that your body has never seen, and when they're expressed at the surface of tumor cells, your immune system identifies this as a foreign element and kills it, just like a cell infected with a virus, for instance. We also want to monitor distinct immune cell populations by the detection of circulating uh, lymphocytes, also looking at uh, tumor cells that might be circulating in the body, and also tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes. So when we see lymphocytes going straight into the tumor, that's a good sign. That means that there's inflammation. We call this the hot tumors. And the lymphocytes are in a better place to kill your, your tumor cells. And finally, we also focus on a measurement of circulating soluble proteins, metabolites, tumor DNA, and also cellular proteins in tumor cells or immune cells in the tumor itself. All these tools are there to better predict pharmacodynamic markers. Um, so they rely essentially on specialized platforms and specialty testing that we have in our labs around genetics, genomics, flow cytometry, immunoassays, and anatomic pathology services. Finally, we also have to consider another class of biomarkers and assays that are there. It's the pharmacokinetic testing to ultimately evaluate the bioavailability of the immuno-oncology drugs using mostly immunoassays for large molecules like antibodies or LCMS or liquid chromatography mass spec for small molecules. Wow. So a lot of things to talk about there. We won't cover them all today. In, we could talk about many things, including companion and complementary diagnostics in other episodes. And we'll dive into each of those pillars in subsequent episodes. But for now, let's talk about how sponsors can be more successful bringing therapies to market. What's the most common mistake you see when looking at the process of clinical testing for new therapies? I'd like to emphasize some key success factors for CDX or companion diagnostic and biomarker testing and clinical trials. We are seeing that too often in early phase clinical trials, Drug developers for immuno-oncology investigational products are considering biomarkers as true CDX or companion diagnostic, when in fact they aim at producing information to, at a later stage, evaluate the potential of these biomarkers to be a CDX. At times, the confusion here is adding a lot of pressure to the clinical labs to validate the assays to a level of stringency that is not necessarily required at that early stage. It also adds to the cost and complexity of study. For biomarkers that are not considered as companion diagnostic, one of the main problem is how the data is generated and how it's gonna be used by the sponsor to support their drug development. That is why early engagement is so critical. Tell me, what does early engagement look like? What exactly do you mean? 
Well, early engagement refers to when sponsors and clinical trial biomarker experts are meeting together and they are trying to better define what is needed to support the clinical trials from a biomarker perspective. And one of the key points is definitely to identify the intended use. What's the biomarker for? For instance, it could be used for exploratory purpose and internal decision enabler. It could be used to set the drug dosing to support a primary or secondary endpoint, and ultimately, companion diagnostic for inclusion and exclusion criteria. Understanding all the intended use and the schedule of testing is key for the lab, in fact, and that's why it's so important to discuss with lab experts and also drug developers. This is actually to achieve the identification of feasibility of using a given biomarker for global clinical trials, sometimes a biomarker which is extremely good in the literature or in academic settings might not be successful in a global clinical trial. I'll get back to this later. Um, it's also to select the best platform and methodology to be used. It's also to define whether we're going to use a central model for testing versus original testing around the world to ensure data quality in a very cost-efficient manner. Finally, we want to define the assay specification, like how sensitive does the assay need to be? And finally, determine how we will be validating the assay to meet the regulatory requirements. So are we going to use a fit for purpose or have a full validation to be able to produce a diagnostic test and result that physician can use to include a patient or exclude a patient from a trial? These are key elements. We also need to evaluate changes that could be needed for adaptive trial design, where during a study, an exploratory biomarker can become a key element to support an endpoint determination. So hence, we need to, in study, provide more validation and change sometimes the format of the assay. All these factors are key considerations during early engagement to design the best biomarker strategy and also to avoid disruption of clinical trials, increase in costs and delays. And I'd like to emphasize that a lot of my customers are asking, what do you mean by early? And I always have a simple answer. There's never early enough. <laughs> All right. So if I understand that correctly, someone comes to you, they may have a biomarker in mind. And there are lots more uses for biomarkers than simply an endpoint companion diagnostic, it sounds like. And, and there may be multiple biomarkers used along the whole development process. And then maybe at the end, one of them becomes a companion diagnostic. That's correct. So there's a lot of biomarker, let's say, candidates, companion diagnostic. And it's um, pretty often we see multiple biomarkers being used in a trial, up to 10, 15 different biomarkers that we use, using different modalities like uh, genomics, flow cytometry, anatomic pathology. And that early phase, if uh, the sponsors see any correlation between drug response and one of those biomarkers, then in the later phase, or what we call a bridging phase, sometimes one of those biomarkers is going to be selected to become a companion diagnostic. Nice. So certainly that makes the case for early engagement because there may be so many more things to think about and things you could use in the process of your trials that would be helpful to know early. Exactly. 
and it's important to consider the quality of the data. So sometimes it's only to verify a hypothesis or make a decision on whether or not, I don't know, some cytokines could be used to predict toxicity or off-target effects. Um, then sometimes you want a quick and dirty assay. But if you want to use that data in order to determine whether it could be a predictive biomarker, then the assay must be more accurate, more robust. It needs to have a better sensitivity and also be validated to support any filing of the, to the authorities. All right. So some companies may be reluctant to segment the market with a companion diagnostic, um, but showing success of a therapy based on a CDX can lead to faster approval. How do your relationships with IVD manufacturers smooth that approach? Uh, this is a very important topic, and I think it's going to be directly addressed in later episodes by our CDX expert. But I'd like to emphasize some points that are worth mentioning over here. First, essentially, the results that are generated from candidate companion diagnostic markers must be easy to interpret and must be actionable both for physicians and also for biostatisticians reviewing the data at the sponsor level. Q-squared solutions solid relationship with IVD manufacturers that are developing CDX based on either genomics or immunochemistry assay platforms is very key. And for instance, it helps us to operationalize the deployment of companion diagnostic testing worldwide to support clinical trials. That includes, for instance, ensuring that we have the proper IRB or Institutional Review Board approval uh, around the world to deploy this assay and test patient samples. Also getting the required training for lab scientists and pathologists, making sure that we have clarity around roles and responsibilities for all parties, including the IVD manufacturer, the sponsor developing the drug and the clinical trial lab, to ensure that we have proper deliverables being identified, timelines, and most importantly, escalation process and communication channels to ensure consistent quality of data across all testing laboratories and also swift resolution of any problem. Okay. So you mentioned there um, the institutional review boards and the necessity to get those approvals globally. And of course, there are other global considerations, both literally and figuratively. What other expertise should we be looking for there? This is such an important point because um, we have to consider a global environment. And as much as we would like everyone in the industry having harmonized guidelines, regulations, and rules across all countries, that's not the reality. So it is a very important point to consider in a clinical trial lab. With ex And you need to identify a lab that is a partner with extensive global experience and a footprint in strategic jurisdictions. For instance, uh, Q-Squared Solutions has labs in USA, Europe, Japan, India, Singapore, and China. And we're aware of the local regulations for those countries, and we can act accordingly. For instance, we can consider regulations about importing kit components, such as needles that are prevented to be imported in some countries, import and export of samples, and also export now of genetic material, and that includes genetic data in specific countries. So you need to be aware of this. You need to pick a clinical trial lab partner that is working in a global environment that knows all the intricacies of those regulatory hurdles, if you want. 
Finally, looking to the future of immuno-oncology and companion diagnostics, what possibilities do you see that are particularly exciting? Well, um, as I opened up the call by saying that uh, I had a training in immunology, you can imagine that I'll be very quickly passionate about that topic. Um, look, immunotherapy in cancer has its roots back in the early 1800s when Dr. Coley observed the regression of sarcomas following severe bacterial infections or even repeated inoculation of bacterial extracts. That led the first commercialization of a immunotherapeutics. Uh, we have seen since the renaissance of this field during this decade, when the first immune checkpoint inhibitor, namely an antibody against CTLA-4, was approved by the FDA for treatment of metastatic cancers. Since then, well, we have seen many immunotherapeutics and have been approved for multiple indications and have shown spectacular clinical results with a direct impact on patients' life, and that's what is counting here. Uh, this solid foundation was, in fact, recognized in October by the Nobel Committee, awarding its prize to Dr. Allison and Dr. Poncho for their seminal work on immune checkpoint inhibitors. So I truly believe that the future of immunotherapeutic and cancer is extremely bright. We're gaining so much insights from both fundamental and clinical research on the biology of cancer immunity, it's astonishing. Uh, this will lead to the design, I believe, of more innovative immuno-oncology drugs and new biomarkers to evaluate those that are the most efficacious and also that have the less off-target effects to benefit ultimately cancer patients. Fantastic. Dr. Patrice Hugo, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome, Chris. If listeners are interested in learning more, Q-Squared Solutions is hosting a free immuno-oncology scientific symposium on March 21st, 2019 in San Francisco. To register, go to www.q2labsolutions.com events.